Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uprise Radio is made on the lands of the Kulin Nation. 3CR recognises that sovereignty was never ceded, a treaty never signed, and so-called Australia remains an unresolved crime scene. We stand in solidarity with Indigenous elders, past, present and emerging, in resisting the settler colonial state. We don't need no education We don't need no thought control Listening to Uprise Radio on 3CR, and it's the 20th of May. My name is Jackson. I'm here with James. Good afternoon, James. Good afternoon, Jackson, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, you know, we're still in a form of lockdown, but it was uh, good to see your face recently. It was, uh, you know, from person. from a safe distance. <laughs> yes, the length the length of a cricket pitch, I believe. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's great. I think that you know it, it is pretty um, interesting. I guess the different reactions from people, uh, what's happening from people's personal level. Uh, but we're going to be looking, I guess, at uh, some of the um, work and economic kind of implications of of the crisis again today, and looking particularly at the university sector. Yeah. You know, higher education has been one of the hardest hit industries during the pandemic, with Australia's universities predicted to lose up to $4.6 billion in revenue in the coming fiscal year, as obviously travel bans and stay-at-home orders uh, see thousands of international and local students defer or cancel their courses. So the efforts by universities and higher education unions to find savings and therefore save jobs is causing a lot of unrest among the various employees in these massive in this massive and complex sector so last week the NTEU the National Tertiary Education Union announced an opt-in plan that would see 15% pay cuts across the sector uh, this prompted a lot of criticism from the CPSU who represent non-academic staff um, saying that this will unfairly disadvantage lower income staff members and also from the protest group NTEU Fight Back, who say workers should never donate their salaries to support management's fiscal woes. And meanwhile, huge amounts of casual workers, I, or, I know a handful, I'm sure you know some, have already lost their jobs. Uh, and RMIT here in Melbourne was roundly criticised for asking permanent staff to volunteer to complete the work of their sacked colleagues. So you can see that it seems like there's a lot of stress and not a lot of satisfaction with the efforts that have been made so far. Yeah, I think the RMIT example is clearly the most absurd, you know, example in this whole thing where they're essentially asking workers to come in and be scabs uh, for free as well. So you get the, um, you know, the great 
benefit of, of scabbing on your workers um, for no monetary cost. I'm not sure why anyone will take up that um, option anytime, let alone if you're not getting paid. But I think it is quite ridiculous. You know, obviously, I, you know, it's a fantasy that education should be or educational institutions should be about educating people. I, I'm not, you know, that seems like a strange idea that this kind of profit making business that universities have been on for such a long time, even, you know, TAFE's rebranding themselves as universities to become part of this, you know, elite sort of institutional um, drive uh, in the country. And, you know, the, the amount of people that obviously the impact of international students not coming to Australia is huge. And, you know, Australia is um, at least in the top five destinations for um, international students across the world. And, you know, so that that's disproportionate, I think, to clearly the amount of um, universities and the population and things in Australia that people would like to come here. And, you know, those places are obviously hugely funded. They, they International students pay much more than domestic students. And, you know, you get that money up front rather than over, you know, hex and things like that. So they've really based their whole model on this and it's fallen apart and they've just you know, turned on their workers, which no, I think is interesting from a university perspective, um, but it's interesting from the union perspective as well. And I think that, in fact, a lot of the unions through this period and the Labor Party itself has um, behaved incredibly poorly, I think, and really shown that uh, kind of issues that people have seen under the surface with the union and workers movement for a long time. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you make there too about what a university or a TAFE for that matter should be for, you know, and hopefully it would be for educating people and also providing the research and the ideas that are going to move society forward. You know, they should be, to my mm. mind, that the things that universities and TAFEs do. But as you said, they've become so focused on making money and building their own brand and prestige that a lot of those other concerns have been lost. But we're really lucky today to be joined by two guests who I think will be... Um, able to give us some really good and valuable insight both now and historically into some of the ways this current situation has um, been created and maybe some of the ways that we can even change it to be better for workers and students and the community as a whole. First of all, we are lucky to be joined by Liz Crash, who's an independent history researcher and former casual higher education worker an NTEU member, as well as a member of the Independent Education Union and the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Liz, thanks heaps for joining us. It's my pleasure. And we've also got Dr. Mark Bainish, a sociologist and 23-year-long teacher and researcher at Australian universities, particularly the University of Queensland and the Queensland University of Technology. Mark, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. So first of all, Liz, are you surprised that the NTEU appears to have done little to help the many casual staff who've already lost out during this crisis? No, Jackson, I'm not. Um, and I think that that's what you'll hear from most uh, <laughs> current or former casual academics, anybody who's been a casual academic in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for that historical perspective, Mark. No yeah, I'm no, I'm not surprised at all. Like, this is typical of their approach. Um, when I was working in the sector, um, I remember the first time I went to an NTEU meeting, I've spoken about this, but the first time I went to an NTEU branch meeting, 
I was super excited. I just started working in academia. I was I joined up. I was ready to get going. And every single person who was there was a permanent academic, and they were like, "Why are you here? Um, you shouldn't. You shouldn't be here." Um, and the only point casuals were mentioned in the branch meeting was when the branch president like made fun of a casual that she'd spoken to for not knowing what was in their contract. Now, casuals at RMIT at that point, you never even saw your contract. Like, mm. um, you just didn't have, it was a theoretical contract. So that kind of thing is just is typical mm. for the NTAU, I'm afraid. I feel like saying you shouldn't be here is like the first thing you shouldn't say in a union meeting. I mean, the whole idea is, is that everyone should be there. Yeah. It's a, anyway, it's, it's, kind of, it's I, I was just going to say, um, uh, you know, I can't even remember my first union meeting because I, I, I don't think we were invited. You know, there, there was somewhere there was an email list or something, but, uh, but you know, we weren't on it. But um, when I used to go to departmental meetings, you know, when I was a, a young fella in, in my 20s, and people just sort of look at you like, you're a tutor. Why are you here? Yeah, it's like, why are you here? Why are you yeah, here? Literally just, in the, yeah, in that branch meeting, if you were permanent staff, you got, like, paid time to go to that meeting. Mm. And if you were mm. casual... Um, you didn't get that paid time. So that was the rationale. They were like, why are you here? You're not getting paid for it. But underlying yeah. that, they were like, why do you care about this? This isn't for you. This is for the real academics. Mm. And that kind of, you know, elitism and hierarchy, I think, is a problem in, in the sector in and outside of the, the union movement, which we can talk a bit more about later. But I just wanted to ask you, Mark, James was talking about earlier that Universities have lost a huge amount of money from international students, which means big losses up front. But why should workers at the uni pay for the university's reliance on that form of funding when they have billions coming over the next decades from local hex payers? Yeah, well, they haven't lost the money yet either, mostly. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're sort of ahead of the car um, in, in the sense that um, that... You know, the, the, the degree of effort that went, for instance, into uh, reassuring students in China who'd either accepted um, offers or who, you know, because everybody goes back for Chinese New Year, obviously, right? So I think about 60,000 students across Australia are still in China, more or less. And um, the universities had a, a very, very good sense of timing in, in making sure that the money is in the bank before they said, oh, actually, it's all going to be online, guys. And, you know, even things like, oh, you can use Google, well, Google, China, right? Um, but, you know, it's, it's an extremely good question because there is very little transparency. So universities have to put in an annual report to state governments every year. So, you know, the governance of the sector is really Byzantine and weird. And, you know, the audited accounts, as it were, don't reflect the cash position. People working within universities have no idea what the cash position is. I don't know if the union knows. I mean, maybe somebody told them, I'm not sure. But insofar as they were negotiating that framework with only a very few people, I mean, for instance, the VC of Latrobe, I think, Dewar, Professor Dewar, you know, he might be able to speak to the financial position of Latrobe, but, you know, it's a mystery, right? Mm. It's an absolute mystery. Yeah, and no one 
even really seems to know like, who did no. they even negotiate this supposed agreement with like was it ever was it more than one vice chancellor like it's very it unclear. was it was on behalf of universities australia they seem to be Ooh, saying it's right. opt-in institution by institution you know that, that members but all the institutions are, are furiously opting out at the same time as um, the NTU branches say we want no part of it. So, you know, it's very, very strange. Talking I about just wanted to go back to something about, um, like Lizzie, you were talking before about, I guess, the, uh, or both of you actually about how, you know, the casual work has particularly not, not been accepted within the NTU. And, you know, I think more and more um, casual university workers are working across different universities that, um, you know, so you might not have, uh, you know, cohort of people that you're working with day in and day out as well as the fact that you're not really accepted within your own union you know that seems pretty um kind of heartbreaking way to be working where you don't feel accepted within a union and also you don't have like the camaraderie of workers to um you know work day in day out you might be rushing from a class in deacon in the morning to rmit in the afternoon etc so you know, how do you organise this kind of fight back with such a um, an organi disorganised kind of workplace and, um, you know, being so fractured from your, you know, other workers? And, yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, like, you know, how do you kind of organise this fight back from a place of that kind of um, position that workers are in? Yeah, um, I mean, I think you're definitely right that it is isolating. Um, you know, like, you just... Um, you don't get the time to really like um, necessarily get to know any of the permanent staff in the department. But um, it's not so much that you never talk to work. Like casual academic um, staff, I can't speak so much to professional staff, but staff like of like similar groupings in the university talk to each other a lot. Like so, when I was a casual like you know, all of the casuals knew each other. Like we all like bitched about everything together, you know, but um, it's the permanent staff who don't know you, like, and who aren't mm -hmm. following up on you. So I quit the sector um, temporarily in 2016 because I had a health crisis. So I was, um, which was due to overwork as a casual. So because I didn't get sick leave, I worked through a case of what turned out to be glandular fever. Um, and then I just wasn't really able to go back to work. Um, and then I was like, maybe I'll dip my toe back in, like about like six months later. Um, didn't hear back, moved on, got a phone call um, about half of the week into the next the semester saying, where have you been? Um, <laughs> And what I realised was that no one had noticed I was gone. Like, none of the permanent <laughs> staff. It's so true. Yeah. Like, they, they absolutely yeah. had not noticed anything that was happening for me until it was inconvenient for them. Mm. Um, so that's... Wow. That, I think, like, that kind of thing, that disconnect between permanent and casual staff is more of a thing than casual staff not being connected with other workers. Like, it, it is mm. hard to organise... Um, casual workers but they the other thing is is everybody works across different institutions so you all know each other maybe not everybody but you know a lot of people at many different institutions as a casual so in some ways it's actually an amazing um, 
sector of the workforce that could be really useful for unionization um, because we work across so many like different institutions. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a, no, sorry. Um, okay. it, it's a paradox because um, the NTU always, you know, pushed for industry bargaining, right? So, and this is what we're seeing, I think. We're, we're seeing the desire of the NTU come true, which is instead of sort of pattern bargaining, they actually get finally to do, you know, industry level bargaining. And guess what? It's a disaster because the sector is extremely complex, very diffuse. But from the point of view of somebody who has one of, you know, the, the wonderful ongoing positions, no, it's not, right? It's just, here you are, you've got your little thing in your uni and, you know, you meet your colleagues at conferences, woo, right? But the rest of the time you're sitting there at, you know, Flinders Uni or the University of Adelaide or, you know, QUT, whatever, right? And, and actually, you know, what, what Liz is saying is so true. It's, it's the people who do work across multiple institutions, different institutions from year to year. Um, you know, gigs like I had for uh, three or four years when I was the Sydney coordinator for UTAS Sydney, which most people don't know exists, right? But I'll give a plug to... Yeah, UTAS Sydney is bad, right? All right. um, But we were doing hashtag service teaching, you know, social sciences into health sciences degree. So we just appear every year in July, you know, and then disappear every year in um, November. So no one at UTAS knew who we were. We knew who we were. You know, we'd, we, we'd write, well, I, I didn't have time, but, you know, some really good journal articles came out of that experience. Um, you know, we'd go drinking, blah, 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 okay? And, um, you know, even when, when I, because I spent five years working in Sydney, and because there are a heap of campuses, you know, within or very close to the CBD, you know, you just go, oh, walking past UTS, I'll drop in on so-and-so. Right. And, you know, and also we actually understand to the degree that um, that I think a lot of people who, you know, it's not a criticism, but a lot of people are focused well, I, I on think their I, own I'm circumstances. Us, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> we actually get how labour markets and funding work in the sector. So, you know, you, you would think we're a resourceful union if they're going to do industry bargaining, but no. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, why do you think the unions are so resistant to take up the opportunity of growing their base not just in education but it seems across a number of large sectors where you know instead of seeing casual workers as potential union members and ways to improve working conditions because often they're you know at the center of new trials of starting different ways of working or things like this we see this across sectors why are unions so resistant to you know open their arms to a broader solidarity why are they so sectarian in their approach because they're cartels. Yeah, I would agree with Mark. I think that um, unions, Australian unions, don't see themselves as representing all workers. They see themselves as defending the position yeah. of a certain segment of workers. So whether that's like citizens, Australian citizens, um, whether it's historically been like white people, um, men, um, and in the case of the NTAU, permanent workers. So a colleague of mine at Latrobe um, has told me that um, an organiser at her university, an NTEU organiser, just offhandedly was like, oh yeah, casuals are scabs, of course. So there's this real perception that casuals are not workers, they're, yeah, they're scab labour, um, that in the, filling these positions with poor, with poor pay and poor fit conditions, 
they're betraying um, the worker um, and that the union is for protecting real workers, permanent yeah. ongoing staff. So it's like, it's like victim blaming and projection, you know, about, about the angst over casualisation. Oh, you're mm. the casualist. You're the one mm. to, you know, like the, there was a really, um, uh, it doesn't seem to have arrived in my email inbox, Liz. Did you get your um, talking points of the day from the union leadership? Oh, well, I'm not in the NTEU anymore, so because oh, I've left the sector, oh. yeah. Oh. You can still be um, in it. I don't have a job, but I'm in it. Um, oh. Yeah, no, I, sign up now, right, and then you can vote no on Monday. But, um, and, and they, won't, they won't charge you for three months. Oh, Hot tip, oh that's right? exciting. Um, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm going to get involved in that level, but I think that I've got definitely a niche of carping from the sidelines. Like... Yeah, I've had like um uh people who are former colleagues of mine, friends of mine who are still in the sector who have said to me, Look, can you please like make this criticism because and like can you please really push this really hard because I can't yeah. afford to burn my bridges with this person because mm-hmm. they are my line manager and they're also my union rep. Um That's so it. It's interesting yeah, what you're they, saying, Liz. It's interesting what you're saying, Liz, about the resistance to casual workers. Um, and I wonder, you know, that I feel like at the moment during COVID-19, people are saying like, oh, there's all these crises happening right now. But I feel like it's just highlighting problems that already existed. And do you think this is characteristic of Australian unions historically? Or, you know, people always talk about the danger of casualization now but I feel like it's always the impetus of business to do things as cheaply as possible, and it always has been. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a modern problem, it's a constant battle. Is that what you see in your research into you know, union movements? Definitely, um, and this shows up in a number of ways. So specifically, um, unions not accepting like casual or precarious workers, it's you know, quote unquote, real members or their core constituency goes way back. Um, so this is something that I found out when I was looking at the lead up to the um, 1900 strikes um, is that there was a huge like conflict in the Newport um, rail workshops between casuals and the union um, and the casuals. There were many, many casual staff um, being employed to do the same work as permanent staff for a lower rate. Um, and the union basically was completely apathetic to their problem. They had to self-organise. Um, and they um, started an industrial action and then they went to the union and the union said, why didn't you come to us first? And the casual organisation said, well, we literally were not allowed. We were not allowed to join the union. Um, at other times, casuals haven't been formally barred from joining the union, but it's been inaccessible or unrealistic in some ways. So, for example, if you're hyper-casually employed, like, for example, day labour during the Depression, mm. you might be working on a building site one day, you might be working, at, you know, at the docks another day. It doesn't, you can't necessarily pay, like, the annual fee for the docks um, union, the dockers union, or the uh, meat workers union, or whatever. Um, so there's been, for a very, very, very long time, um, an exclusion of casual or precarious work workers from the union movement um, and that's also extended to other categories of vulnerable marginalized workers so you know in, from the 1880s um, through to well now you see a massive demonization of migrant workers particularly Chinese workers 
um, at the same time as their conditions are like deplored. So, you know, that's kind of basically the start of the organised Australian labour movement is saying, oh, you know, this, these migrant workers, these Chinese workers are being so overworked and treated so badly. Um, we have to keep them out because they're wearing down paying conditions for real workers, Australian yep. white men. Rather so than we is, need to lift them up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Just, and just about, within, yeah. within the context of, um, I think that that information is really important looking at, um, you know, the roots of Australian unionism and I guess much like Australian history is, um, you know, unfortunately founded in racism as well. That, But, you know, I guess what do... Um, what kind of role do we see today? And, you know, I guess, um, you know, casual, as I said before, that it's difficult for casual workers, but, you know, it can still be in the union. And, you know, I guess as union members or members of any organisation where um, we believe in part of what um, the organisation is, but, it, you know, it has issues within it. How do we um, agitate for change within that? You know, how do we make sure that, I guess at the moment we've got the NTU fight back group, which is, you know, trying to agitate for something different within the union. You know, do you guys see that that, do you see that that is an example of being able to uh, fight for something different or, you know, how do we agitate for, because like you're saying, Liz, I think that it's not just the NTU, but there's problems within unions in Australia generally um, about the union leadership and bureaucracy within that. Um, you know, we haven't even mentioned, I guess, the problems with their uh, affiliations with the Labor Party and where that gets the um, unions often as well. So I know it's a big, pretty big question. I guess it's a bigger question about how do we deal with um, trying to be, you know, agitators within a, a union, but then I guess the NTU itself, you know, what can people do who are listening that, um, you know, want to be fighting for their rights and other workers as well? Sign up for all the pages. But um, just can I just make a, a little comment um, based on what Liz was just saying, because it's this thing called labourism, okay? So it's not just the Labour Party, it's labourism, which is, you know, the predominant or the hegemonic ideology, you know, hegemonic ideology of trade unions in Australia from whenever. And, um, you know, right from the start. But just, I, I want to point out as well that it is still whiteness it is still whiteness so at the university of sydney for instance the department of sociology and social policy has something like you know and well i say don't quote me when i'm talking but you know i'm not i'm not sure if these figures are accurate but um because I, I just get them from talking to people you know not not from nobody is saying let's work this out let's do some research which is it's okay, Mark. We know it's not peer review. <laughs> it's not peer review. <laughs> it's lived so, experience. It's phenomenology, right? It's lived experience. <laughs> so um, phenomenography. Anyway, but but you know, about 70 to 80 percent of the PhDs are Chinese, okay, Chinese nationals. Guess how many tutors in the department are not Australians? Answer until this semester, zero, zero, okay, zero, none, right? And yeah. um, one friend of mine who started at ANU, and she's a really good teacher, um, and I met her as part of, you know, one of my sort of, oh, it's July, it must be time for, you know, this uni gigs, wanted to teach and had taught at ANU, but it's like, oh, no, 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 you're, 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 you're from China, you're here to study, you're not here to teach. Mm -hmm. Ooh, right? And, um, you know, and and... 
in that department as well, more or less the entire honours program was being run by a casual staff member because the permanent staff members do not want to teach. Yeah, so, academics you know, don't actually like teaching a lot of them. No, like, a lot of them, little, yeah. yeah. it doesn't advance your career. Um, no. It's not, like, valued, really. Um, hashtag actually, not all academics, but, yeah. Hashtag not all academics, no. Hang yeah. on a minute. Um, Maybe I'm ignorant, but isn't that one of the purposes of a university, to teach people? <laughs> somebody well, somebody said... Oh, sorry. Somebody said um, a hedge fund with a school attached, which I think is something yeah, basically. <laughs> well, a property development firm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in Australia, yeah. yeah. Basically, yeah. your career advances in academia um, through attracting money mm. to the university, so getting grants yeah. um, and publications. And publications. Grants. Yeah. yeah. Um, teaching is... It has to be mm. done, but they're not really invested in quality of teaching. Um so the bulk of like the real heavy teaching work, like if there's any kind of class planning to be done, um, mm. any kind of discussion about pedagogy, that usually falls on casual labour. Um, and yeah, it's because it's not valuable to your career progression and because it's not taught, um, most permanent academics and most casuals who will ever become permanent academics are terrible teachers. They're awful at it. Um, Both of you seem to have sidestepped James' question about how we can agitate within. No, no, I think it's. I think it's revealing yeah, we how we can. No, it's a fantastic can, question. No, but it's revealing too, isn't it? Like, how can we yeah. use the union to improve the conditions? I mean, we're going massively. Well, maybe we don't. We're going maybe massively. We don't right, I actually do have an answer to that question. Yeah, let's um, let's hear it. Let's let's hear it. All right. So, um, as you know, Mark and I were saying earlier, um. Casuals actually bring a real strength to organising in the sector, which is that they have knowledge of multiple institutions um, and they uh, can basically work as union organisers um, in that they visit multiple sites. So this was a key strategy used by the Meat Workers Union, for example, um, in early 20th century Queensland, um, which is a very, very strong union, able to get many, many um, improvements in pay and conditions. And one of the reasons that they were able to do this is because um, there was a large work, an important portion of the workforce was skilled journeymen. Um, so um, people who worked in the actual slaughtering part, like it was a highly skilled role, um, but they were never employed by one slaughterhouse. They would travel across different houses and different institutions mm. and because they had an important a valuable role that was essential to the functioning of the industry but they moved across many many sites um they those workers were very often members of the um, industrial workers of the world um, and they were able to really organize very effectively and radicalize that union. um but just in general like you know, just as we shouldn't expect the bosses to, you know, voluntarily give us better paying conditions, precarious workers should not expect their union to just do the right thing. Like, it's always a struggle. So mm. casuals have got to organise, and that's what they're doing now. Exactly, and and I'm feeling the love, right? Like the, the solidarity that's being enacted is really great. Mm. It's really inspiring. It's really, it's really inspiring. It's really, really inspiring. Um, I feel like there was a deliberate link between the slaughterhouse and universities there as well. 
<laughs> well, and you know, the, the, it's what, what Liz is saying is so true because same, same in Queensland in, you know, the very early years of unionism with the Australian, or not the Australian, but what was then the railway union and the Australian Workers' Union. The Australian Workers' Union was a huge site of political contest. You know, it wasn't always um, Bill Ludwig and Bill Shorten and other people called Bill. I think we could also note here that, um, or I, I want to note this, but it's one of, one of the ironies of this whole thing is that we're now seeing a union whose leadership is, I don't know if it's predominantly, but there's certainly a lot of Greens members in the leadership doing exactly what they, in some instances in their own publications, have critiqued the Labor Party for doing, which tells us something. It's not a point about individuals. It tells us that this model of unionism is hegemonic, right? That, that you know, it's not just... I mean, there's so many ideas, right? Like, so, I mean, a mate of mine who used to work for the ACTU before, you know, we won't talk about it. But, but you know, they, they, they were... And the Victorian government, to its credit, put some money into this. And they were looking at ways that they could reach out and organise migrant workers, OK? But then there is a fight because the fight is always the people who are trying to do the organising and the migrant workers, you know, and the people are often the migrant workers, will say, we need to fight this now, right? And the unions will say, oh, no, no, we need a tool and a technique and a workshop and, you know, you guys need and to join need to the union. We need to build membership usually. We need to we build need membership. To, yeah. Right? We need to get everybody to join before we can give them a reason why they should join. That's exactly right. So, you know, we, we you know, and, and, you know, I have, I have, every sympathy for sort of this, you know, if, if we start thinking, what is this model of sort of distributed consciousness? What can that do? You know, Marx, Marx, he was, a, he was some old white guy, you know, used to talk about the collective worker, that capitalism actually creates the collective worker. You know, the unit of work is no longer the household. Work is distributed across sites, in, you know, now it's across global supply chains. How can you look at and what we're seeing with casualization is we're seeing the return of the return of the obviousness of that model in the way that people live their lives. Not, oh yeah, you know, capitalism, you know, is a thing, but I have a nice job at the university. No, right? Where where is the labor coming from that produces the value? And I'm not a Marxist, right? But you know, it's 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 political economy 101. And, you know, bizarrely, bizarrely, people who are experts in hashtag political economy can't see it. You know, the, the people who are in some of these union branches in a leadership role. Now, I've got, a, I've got a... What you're saying that it does um, capitalism, you know, like the Marx quote, the capitalism, you know, digs its own grave and all that. But, um, and Liz, you know, you mentioned about the Wobblies... Um, you know, that was an instance where people could join a revolutionary union. Um, but I think, you know, despite the fact that there's an NTU um, fight back group, you know, which is, um, you know, predominantly led by some revolutionaries and people, socialist groups and whatever, that we don't have strong left-wing groups that are able to provide that kind of assistance. You know, we Wobbly's organisation or, um, you know, any of these kind of institutions to really challenge the leadership uh, in unions. And like you said, Mark, the Greens are 
looking to make some of the same mistakes that parliamentary, you know, politicians would. Mm. So I don't, I don't want to leave us in a grim picture there, but, it's, <laughs> you know, it does, it does, I guess, rely on um, us finding those connections with each other and building that kind of solidarity, um, you know, meeting up and trying to build, uh, you know, a better union movement that means that we can work with each uh, other and fight for better and conditions. Solid, and solidarity yeah. as well with yeah, um, yeah. international, like, students, yeah. graduate students, migrant yeah. workers, yeah. non-academic staff. That's something that is not often, that's actually not always present in radical casual academics um, who no. are local citizens or, you know, who perhaps don't really reach out to, you know, the, the admin workers or, like, the cleaners. The IT workers. Anybody else at the or university. Or students even. Or yeah, students, students, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Students are often kind of seen as a burden by academics mm. because they're, they're always like, asking you to read their email. It's almost like <laughs> there's a whole ideological framework that splits us, splits us all into little individual groups and stops us seeing our common, our common humanity. But I want to ask that, you guys, hey. we've gone massively over time and, you know, we're only going to be able to put some of this on the episode, but it'll, it'll all be on the podcast, which is great. But I want to ask you both, um, you know, if you could... Like what, what are our universities for, I think, is a really important question. Like, what, what do we want them as a society? What function do we want them to perform? What value? You know, you spoke before, Mark, about where is the value coming from? What value do we want our universities to have? Because it feels like we're being pulled in a lot of different directions by academics, by the sector itself, the industry, by the government, by students. They all have different ideas about what a university should be. So I want to ask you both, like, what is, it, what is a good uh, progressive um, functioning university system look like to each of you? And you've only got a, a minute and a half each. Universities should stop being heteropic spaces. Um, so, so I did <laughs> describe your research in, you know, three words. Um, my, my PhD was called The Phenomenology of Utopia, okay? So um, universities have been described as a heterotopia, meaning the reproduction of the same. Okay, that, that's what they exist for, basically. It's to, not just to reproduce themselves, but to reproduce the same, okay? So what do you counterpose to that? You counterpose utopia. What, what is utopia? Don't specify, right? It's, it's, it's emergent, it's distributed, it's complex, it's nonlinear. And, I mean, those are all kind of nice academic words, but... Actually, it's walking down George Street and meeting your mate and having a coffee and then talking to the barista who has just had to save up $16,000 to pay her first year UTS nursing fees for one semester, okay? That's, that's utopia, right? And you know, dare I say, the socials are good for this. But, but you know, I, I don't think... A university can be many things. You know, universities, as we were talking about earlier, Jack, right? So the University of Queensland, its establishment was opposed by the Labor Party. It happened, it came into existence about 50 or 60 or 70 years after universities in some other states. What sold it was that it would produce useful knowledge, okay? So mining engineering, civil engineering, veterinary science, okay? And universities still do that, you know. So when somebody studies finance or economics, they're learning to move money around, okay? This is useful knowledge. And the government doesn't say, oh, my God, the engineering school is full of cultural Marxists. 
Okay, so so you've got you've got this core function is to reproduce the same. All right, how how do we also take something that is equally part of the history and the tradition and the vibrancy of universities, which is to produce the new? You know, we 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 need to think about it that way. We need to think really not abstractly but really globally you know and globally right as as Liz was was quite rightly saying you know what are universities for and you know we're, we're not I mean I'm, I'm gonna nick off out of the country as soon as they, they let people vote themselves off the island right um, but I'll continue to to take an interest but you know we, we should not expect that um, you know somehow in 10 years time or 20 years time that structural problem will go away but you need to start thinking about how do we shift it you know how do we shift the balance from reproducing the same to producing the new yeah feels like a rant and i think the i guess my answer would be a bit simpler can i say i love academics um deliver um what you think in a minute impossible um, it's impossible it is impossible but I would say that we need to be developing alternatives to the university as well. Um, yes. To challenge the university from outside, um, to make like the university not the only place where you can do research and learning um, so that people aren't trapped there as conditions get worse and worse. Mm. Um, so I would say that um, uh, for the university to be whatever we want it to be, which is not necessarily clear yet, it can emerge. We need to have many, many sites across our society and inner um, social movements where people can like learn and teach and challenge and research and write. Okay. It's been so nice to talk to you both. Um, and it was a very wide ranging conversation, but that's great. We love that on Uprise Radio. Um, thanks heaps for joining us today and um, all the best for the future. Manaka. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah, we had fun. Thanks. We did have Bye. fun. Thanks for listening to Uprise Radio on 3CR, and we'll catch you next time. We're going to speak for ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Because see, the schools ain't teaching us nothing. They ain't teaching us nothing about how to be slaves and hard workers for white people. To build up their shit, make their businesses successful. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.